Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another SACPA session this morning, this wonderful morning. Uh, SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people in the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. And we pay our respects to their past, present, and future cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship to the land. SACPA is also very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. Our speaker with us today is Dr. Christopher McNabb, and I'll just, there he is, um, on the topic of private healthcare for Alberta, efficiency, effectiveness, and equity. Dr. McNabb is the CEO and Executive Director of the Institute of Health Econ Economics, bringing more than 25 years of experience as a health economist. He trained and worked for 20 years in the UK before immigrating to Canada. During this time, he held full professorship at the Universities of Sheffield, Warwick and Leeds. He was more recently a professor of health economics at the University of Alberta, where he was appointed Capital Health Endowment Research Chair at the University of Alberta. He's the current chair of the Royal Society of Canada COVID Task Force Working Group on Economy. Thank you very much for joining us today, uh, Dr. McCabe, and I look forward, well, we all look forward to your talk. Thank you very much. It's a, an absolute pleasure and a privilege to be able to speak to you today. So, um, if, uh, are my slides showing, uh, Annalise? Are they? My slides are up. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to talk to you about private healthcare for Alberta, a very uh, topical uh, and on occasions um, a, a source of disquiet um, and trying to unpack the issues that are in play. Um, I'm not going to take a strong view on. Uh, uh, the right or wrong of, of, of private healthcare, just to try and unpack what what we know are, are likely to be the choices that we face. So, next slide, please. Next slide. Yeah. 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 Excellent. So, thank you. Um, so, this is a quote. Uh, th what I'm going to do is I'm going to give some background information. Uh, then I'm going to talk about what we mean by private healthcare because there are. Uh, as many different models as private healthcare as, as there are uh, sort of health systems in the world, to be honest. Uh, and so let's try and be clear about what we're, what we're talking about here. And we're going to talk about specifically about two-tier healthcare, of which, again, there are many different models, but I think that's the focus of, of uh, interest here in Alberta, of what happens if we move to two-tier healthcare. Uh, and so talk about that and, and talk a little bit about what that might mean for access, what we might expect it to do to the quality of care and what we might expect to do to the cost of care. Uh, and then bring those back to focus on. So what about Alberta? What are the implications of moving to two-tier healthcare in Alberta? And, and then I understand there's uh, half an hour for for questions uh, uh, at the end of that. So I look forward to uh, those discussions. They'll probably be at least as rich as and interesting as, as what I, I present in the first 30 minutes. So next slide, please. Yep. So this is a quote from Kenneth Arrow. Kenneth Arrow uh, won the Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, and, and he wrote uh, a truly seminal paper in 1963 uh, called Uncertainty and the Welfare Economics of Medical Care, which uh, identified 
why healthcare as a commodity is unlike almost any other commodity and, and most specifically why we shouldn't expect uh, free markets, unregulated markets to be particularly good at, at delivering healthcare uh, in an efficient uh, manner and in a manner that uh, optimized social welfare. And in essence, uh, you can summarize it as that healthcare breaches all of the, not just one or two, but pretty much all of the requirements of a commodity, commodity for it to be well suited for provision by unregulated uh, free market. Uh, which is not the same as saying that it cannot be efficiently and equitably produced and provided through market mechanisms. It's just you will need regulation. And what drives this is uncertainty. So I'm going to read out this quote because it, it really is important to understand. The most obvious distinguishing characteristic of an individual's demand for medical services is that it is not steady in its origin, as, for example, food or clothing, but irregular and unpredictable. We do not know if or when or what healthcare we will require. In fact, we're all very happy if we don't require healthcare. It's uh, life is going well if we do not need healthcare. If we sense that we might need healthcare, we will go to a doctor to find out whether we really do need healthcare. You know, often I, I describe as you know attending the emergency department as a, a highly sensitive but not very specific test for whether you need healthcare. A doctor will tell you whether your symptoms are actually something that needs intervention. Most of us, because we are not trained clinicians, do not have the knowledge, the expertise to interpret our symptomology as to whether it's indicative of a, a, a serious condition or a condition that will be self-resolving or something that actually will need uh, major intervention because it, it may well be life-threatening. Um, we don't have that expertise and, and the, so we use doctors and we rely on doctors to tell us that, which means they have a great deal of information, whereas we have very little information. And our ability to judge what we need and the quality of what we got and to attribute our subsequent health to what we received in healthcare is very limited. This is not true of most commodities. In most commodities, we purchase them with confidence about what we're buying. We can buy a car without having to commission an expert on our behalf. We have enough knowledge to know what sort of car we need, to, to look at the publicly available evidence to see whether a specific car will meet our needs. And once we've bought the car, we pretty rapidly know whether it's delivering what we what we were promised when we bought it. This is not uh, the case with medical care. So in, in, in terms of free market terminology, we do not have perfect knowledge. We also are not able to freely enter and exit the market, which is necessary for effective competition to drive down prices. I cannot put out a shingle and say I'm an MD. Therefore, I cannot legally practice medicine. So even if I see that MDs get very high salaries, maybe salaries massively in excess of a market return on the investment they made to get trained as MDs, 
I am not able to compete that price down. There is not free entry to the market. Therefore, MDs have a degree of market power. So they have a, a certain ability to set prices that we pay as a profession is if they organize themselves to do that. So as an individual buyer, if I attempt to, 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 to move into a healthcare market, I pretty much have to accept the price that I'm given because I do not have enough purchasing power to bid that price down. No matter how in excess of a fair return on investment, I may think that price is. And this is all driven by this fundamental uncertainty that Arrow uh, laid out and, and, and worked through the implications of in this truly seminal paper for health economics uh, from 1963. So um, that's what's different about healthcare <laughs> and why we might not expect a market to be a good model. Okay, so now onto the background. So I want the, 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 five, the Canada Health Act principles. If that's up, that's the one I want. So in Canada, you know, when uh, our Medicare system was created, uh, there were certain principles that were laid out, and, 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 and these are really important. First of the public administration. So uh, the responsibility for covering healthcare, providing healthcare, is at the provincial and territorial level. And it must be operated on a not-for-profit or non-profit basis by the public authority. Okay, so that means that we, as individuals, do not actually have to uh, go and negotiate prices with healthcare providers. You know, we're not a, a single powerless consumer. Fortunately, we have our governments operating public administration, and, and they can negotiate prices and secure services on our behalf. Uh, and that operates at the provincial level, not the federal level, which is important. Comprehensive. Um, all medically necessary services provided by hospitals, medical practitioners and dentists working in the hospital set should be covered by this. Oh, I apologize. My, my camera just <laughs> fell off. I do apologize, everybody. Um, so it's been one of those mornings. Um, okay. Comprehensive. Notice it's comprehensive of hospital-based healthcare. So lots of out-of-hospital care and most notably pharmaceuticals, out-of-hospital pharmaceuticals, are not covered. So it's not truly comprehensive as we would think of it now, but at the time it was established, comprehensiveness was set out there. Universality. All insured persons should have access to the healthcare coverage on the same terms and conditions. So that solidarity, that principle of solidarity that's in our constitution is in this uh, Canada Health Act. And, final, and, and then accessibility. All insured persons must have reasonable access without financial or other barriers. So the other barriers that you know is important in Alberta is, is the geographical ones. It isn't possible, it isn't realistic to have a University of Alberta tertiary centre hospital in every small town in Alberta. That variation in access is allowed under the idea of what is reasonable. But we make massive efforts to, um, to, to make sure that people who live in rural areas can get to the care they need. I, I was stunned when I first moved here 10 years ago to find that Alberta Health Services uh, has its own 
uh, fleet of airplanes. You know, I think they have a, a Learjet. I mean, that A told me, you know, just how big Alberta is geographically, but also as a, as a, a statement of our commitment to that principle of access equality of access, uh, I, I find it very telling, very impressive. So tax accessibility and then portability. We move around the country and our coverage should be uh, consistent. You know, we take our coverage with us. So those are the principles. And I think underlying it all is this principle of access to high quality care, irrespective of your ability to pay and other um, uh, sort of structural barriers that are outside of our control. Next slide, please. So uh, the first really substantial challenge uh, to uh, the idea that all healthcare in Canada, uh, hospital healthcare in Canada is provided through the public uh, service uh, was the Chuli case in Quebec. Uh, Dr. Chuli wanted to open a private hospital in Quebec and uh, Mr. George Zeliotis uh, was a businessman with had a large number of comorbidities uh, and was his quality of life was substantially affected by waiting lists in the public system. And he argued with Julie in the Supreme Quebec Supreme Court that the ban on private insurance was a, a breach of his right to life and security of person uh, under the Charter of Rights. Um, so uh that quite a long time ago now and and we've all kind of been waiting for more cases uh, and eventually expecting a case of this sort to get to the supreme court of canada to to address the well can you really ban private medical care and and for a long time it was expected that this would be the canby case so canby case started off in 2009 and 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 came to uh, fruition got to judgment uh, 10 years later in, in BC before the BC Supreme Court uh, and this was led uh, by a, a surgical company uh, who who wanted to provide uh, privately private provision of surgical sort, uh, care uh, funded through insurance and removing the ban on private provision of medically necessary care and removing the ban on cl clinicians being able to charge top-up fees over and above what they were paid from the public service. Um, and, 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 and they argued this unsuccessfully. They were unsuccessful. In, 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 in British Columbia, the Supreme Court there said the limits on, um, on access to private care are reasonable because the objective of Medicare is not to ensure that all people have access to the same care, but rather that there is equitable access to, to care. And equity and equality are not the same. Equity is not everyone getting the same thing. And that if we were to allow private uh, financing and provision of medically necessary care, the major beneficiaries of this would be those who were relatively wealthy and relatively healthy and that would be in clear breach of the principles underlying medicare and therefore that the limits that were uh, implemented in bc and versions of them were implemented in other countries in other provinces are um are reasonable and, and so the the canby case 
they fail to win their arguments. Um, so what do we mean by private healthcare? So is private healthcare illegal in Canada is the slide I'm looking for. Thank you. So this is a, a lovely survey of, uh, by uh, Colleen Flood and uh, I think Tom Archwell, University of Ottawa, it was back in 2001. But it's a lovely survey that shows that actually lots of aspects of private healthcare are perfectly legal in Canada. There is variation is what, in what is legal across Canada between provinces, but um, there, there, is, uh, there is lots of scope for private practice uh, from the legal perspective. So, for example, can opted out physicians bill any amount? Well, uh, yes, they can in Alberta, in, uh, in, in BC, in Saskatchewan, if you sort of them halfway down, there's lots of yeses. So, yeah, if, if, unless you, if you are happy to live only in a private system as a doctor, you can bill kind of what you like. Um, you know, so it's not that private healthcare is illegal in Canada. Flood and Archibald conclude that actually the problem is that the sorts of um, subsidies required from the public sector, the private sector, to make private healthcare uh, profitable are not readily available. And that's quite different from it being illegal. Something not being economically viable is not the same as it being illegal. And there is a question about whether we should be spending public dollars to support private industries that are not economically viable without that uh, investment, that subsidy. I'm not, we quite often do subsidize private industry because we believe them to be socially important. And so it, it's, it's a normative decision as to whether we believe having private health care is socially important. And, and there are many people who believe it is, that the, the, the choice that that gives some people in society is a, a normatively important thing. Next slide, please. So multiple models of private health care. Uh, private provision of publicly funded medically necessary care. So we have that in Alberta. We've had it for a long time in different forms where private clinics will receive public funds to provide care that's medically necessary. Private provision of privately financed medically necessary care, we do not have because that's in breach of, of the uh, Canada Health Act. Um, hybrid private top-ups to publicly provided medically necessary care. This is meant to be illegal, um, but there are examples of it happening and, and when it happens in principle, uh, the public, the government can be fined or can have money clawed back from the Canada Health Transfers if that's observed. So that's a form of subsidy. Uh, another hybrid model, uh, model is uh, the other way around where there's public subsidy and then a or payment of privately financed, privately, privately provided medically necessary care. And then the final one is the, the, the straightforward privately financed, privately provided non-medically necessary care. The discussion we're having and the concern we have is around the medically necessary care. Okay. Um, and note that when we say private in this, they could be for profit or not for profit. In the US, we have a lot of not for profit 
uh, hospital hospitals providing uh, medically necessary and non-medically necessary care. So there is private is not equivalent, not a synonym for profit maximizing. Next slide, please. Um, so we got three uh, of these that we are um, concerned about as being versions of uh, of two-tier healthcare. Uh, the, the private provision of privately financed, financed medically necessary care will mean that only those who have the ability to pay will access that. So they used to have that in Holland, where uh, all people above a certain household income had to purchase private health insurance, and they would get then get that health care through private hospitals. That's changed now. Um, there's private top-up to publicly provided necessary care. Um, so that's, uh, again, only those people with the ability to pay could uh, use that sort of hybrid model. So there's an equity issue there. And then there's the public subsidy of private financed medically necessary care, which is quite similar to the previous one. Again, where the public pays up front and then the uh, a private finance and insurance will pay an additional fee to the provider for the medically necessary care. So those are the broad three models that we're concerned about in the uh, two-tier healthcare space. So two-tier healthcare, it's a, it's a phrase that gets banded about a lot. And uh, so what do we mean? So here, here's a definition, um, and the, most of the definitions I've seen are pretty similar to this. A healthcare system where everyone can access uh, a basic publicly funded healthcare program. What do we mean by basic? We'll come back to that maybe later. But for those who can afford it, they can access a more robust level of care with better care or faster access, and indeed often uh, a perception or a claim of both. Uh, and we'll come back to that claim as well. So it clearly breaches uh, the following principles. It breaches comprehensiveness, because uh, it, it's, you know, the, the medically necessary uh, will not all medically necessary will be included in the basic publicly funded healthcare program is the concern. It breaches universality because our access is dependent, um, isn't for all persons um, and their uniform terms and conditions are not in place. And then straightforward accessibility. Um, provincial and territorial plans must provide all insured persons reasonable access to medical and therefore without financial barriers or, or financial or other barriers. So it clearly breaches that. So um, two-tier healthcare is a direct repudiation of uh, the Canada Health Act provisions. Next slide, please. So I'm think a little about, about what this means for access, quality and cost. Next slide. So by definition, it creates unequal access. Models two, three, and five create unequal access on the basis of income. It is a normative decision as to whether unequal access on the basis of income, unequal access to healthcare on the basis of income is a good, bad, or indifferent thing, okay? I'm not gonna take a position to that on that, but it is undoubtedly true that Two-tier healthcare creates unequal access. 
Model 2 from the previous slide doesn't breach the Canada Health Act because the private provision does not come at the expense of public provision. So if you really want private provision and you can pay for it without public subsidy, you can create a completely independent, privately funded, privately provided healthcare system. And the Alberta UCP uh, at their uh, conference last year actually approved a motion that we should see the development of a completely private healthcare system in Alberta. I really am having a bad day with my camera. <laughs> I do apologize. I really do apologize. You're so, fine. Anyway, uh, there we go. So, uh, you know, that isn't, it, it's only if it requires public money to make it work that it breaches the public health, the Canada Health Act. Quality of care. So, will you get better quality of care? Uh, so there's this really very recent review from last year, 2020, looked across all the literature on the relationship between cost, price and quality of care. And unfortunately, there is not a reliable link between the price you pay and the quality of the care you get. And this is unsurprising, given what we were talking about at the beginning, about how we as individuals are very uninformed consumers in the healthcare setting. Our ability to get what we pay for is really poor in healthcare. We need informed actors to act on our behalf to ensure that we get what we pay for. And healthcare is really odd because the actor who we depend on is simultaneously or frequently simultaneously the provider of that care. They will be the recipient, at least in part, of the revenue, the price that we pay. So assuming that just because you're paying more in healthcare, you're getting better healthcare, is not an empirically validated fact. You may well feel better because you feel that you are paying top dollar and you're relying on price as being an indicator of quality. But as this review from April last year shows, when you look at the literature, the empirical evidence, there is not a strong convincing link between how much we pay for our healthcare and the quality of that healthcare. And that's partly because we are very weak as consumers. We're uninformed and our ability to shop around for good value for money, whether that's high cost, high quality, medium cost, low cost, medium quality or whatever, it's impaired because of our uncertainty and our lack of knowledge about the commodity. Next slide, please. So, cost, I want to talk about cost. I've said a few times, we get a lot of money from the Canada, through the Canada Health Transfer, so five billion for the forthcoming financial year that money can be clawed back by the federal government dollar for dollar for money that we put into private provision in a way that breaks the accessibility principle so the canada health transfer are conditioned upon uh, provincial enforcement of accessibility if we do not have meet the accessibility criteria, the federal government can claw the money back dollar for dollar. So if we go for large scale two-tier healthcare in Alberta, we will have to pay for it out of our own budget. 
And so there's a question about whether that is a priority for public funds. Because if the money gets taken back, it will be taken out of our healthcare system's budgets. And so out of the provincial uh, treasury, we'll have to top up that money or allow certain volume, certain types of care no longer to be available. So, you know, if the Canada Health Transfer is those powers are used, and that's a big if, they've not been used really, but they could be used. And so there's a risk we need to think about there. We could, if we put a lot of money into creating unequal access to tier healthcare, that money is at significant risk of being clawed back. So we need to think about that, I think. Um, so qualifying for federal funding, these are the things we have to do. We have to avoid extra billing, so no top-ups over above what the public sector pays. No use the charges, which is a variation on that theme. No parallel private insurance, which is what they want to do in BC, and the BC Supreme Court said no. Uh, doctors have to opt in or out. So they can't, basically, they're not allowed to create an opportunity to subsidize their private business through working in the public system. And restricting the fees that doctors who do opt out can charge for medically necessary care. Those are the, the things that have to be in place for our Canada Health Transfer Funds not to be at risk. Um, so we need to think about that. If we're creating two-tier healthcare, it's very difficult to tick those boxes and uh, not risk losing our Canada Health Transfer Funds, I would say. Um, Government of Alberta, what it's actually saying, well, they want 30% of elective surgeries undertaken in private clinics. But that's publicly funded, privately provided. So that's not a problem. Uh, they're looking at additional 80,000, which is not actually a huge volume. So it's a small number. And it's not in a form that breaches the Canada Health Transfer principles. So this is not two-tier healthcare currently. Um, but it may be more costly. You know, the uh, Stephen Duckett, the cookie monster, uh, reported... Uh, that the surgical services they were buying back in 2013, 2014 were much more expensive from the private sector. And that's economies of scale. These hospitals and clinics cannot do the volumes to get their average costs, their cost per case down to the same level as Alberta Health Services. And that may be seen as an unfair advantage. And we may quite legitimately say it is worth paying the extra for there to be a private healthcare industry in Alberta. And, 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 and you know, that's a legitimate political value judgment. Uh, and I'm not going to make a call one way or the other. But it may well be that we are more expensive if we want to promote these, these avenues of choice. And that's fine, but let's do it knowingly. So will private provision increase total activity? So address waiting lists? Well, it depends about whether the, the waiting list is driven by capital, shortage of capital, so operating theatre capacity, or um, labour, so surgeons. If it's capital, we can build operating theatres pretty quickly, and the private sector can certainly do that. They can build them, you know, get them up and running in a year or 18 months. If it's labour, training surgeons takes a long time. And the idea that we would attract large numbers of surgeons in from other provinces is probably not credible because we already pay our doctors much more 
in the public system. If people were, were going to be driven, attracted to come here for earning more money, they would already be here. So the marginal impact of how much extra they could make by operating the private system is probably minimal. So it's about whether the shortage is driven by capital or labor. And I do not know. I am unclear. I have not seen evidence on that. But it's not a given that private provision will actually increase total activity. It may displace public sector activity as well. So there you go. That, that's my quick run through the way we, I feel we should think about and the factors we should be aware of in considering uh, moving to greater use of private sector provision and private financing for healthcare in Alberta. So time for questions. Excellent. Thank you so much. That was a super uh, great presentation. We have lots of questions in the queue, so I'm just going to jump right in with the first question that comes from Ian Hurdle. Kalispell, Montana, prior to border closure, was doing as many total joints on Canadians as, Lef as Lethbridge, cost 50,000 ca uh, Canadian, versus 9,000 Canadian total cost with one-tenth of the waiting time, dollars gone from Canada. Would you like to comment on that? That was... Yeah, and so the, the question is, um, first of all, if that money, what would that money be spent on here? I mean, th those are presumably people paying private out of pocket. Um, uh, so the, it, it leaves, they buy something they want uh, uh, to move around our limits. It, it's a question of how important is equity? You know, um, if we want to privilege those who can afford to pay fifty thousand uh, dollars, that that's fine. You know, that that's a, a societal decision we can make. But let us not pretend that that is not also going to take people away, take care away from others. In that, if we set up the private system, we will have to at least in the short term until more surging capacity is created, those surgeries will be, taken, will be delivered by people who otherwise would be operating in the public system. So uh, that means that people who can't pay $50,000 will have a longer wait list. Okay. So in lots of ways, I think it's very generous of those people who have the money to, that they can buy their care south of the border um, because that actually that actually does help the waiting list in Canada for those who are less financially fortunate. So it, it's that there is no uh, avoiding the trade-off between equity and uh, speed of access. You know, so those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to uh, buy care south of the border when we need it are actually helping with equity. Um, if we want to repatriate those dollars, we're going to we're going to have to accept a reduction in the equity of access to healthcare, and that's a legitimate decision. And, and you know, it, it's just let's not pretend that that the decision is other than that. Uh, Mark Goodall's question kind of follows up on this theme: 
Is there any information on how many Canadians travel outside of the country for medical, medically necessary care? How much do they spend for this care? And in the end, does it save our system or is it detrimental? Um, so it's very difficult to uh, get information, reliable information on that. Um, there's surveys on certain types of care uh, where, where researchers have uh, tried to you know, survey people traveling uh, for um, gastric bypass, et cetera. Um, and that's usually when there is, uh, as, as a response to an observation of people coming back and then needing uh, additional care from the health system because what was delivered wasn't of high quality. Of course, people going south of the border into the US, they are almost certainly receiving very high quality care. And so we won't actually, we won't get that signal of the volume of activity. So there's limited uh, and quite selective evidence on the volume uh, uh, and type uh, and value of, of, of uh, out of country health tourism going on. Okay. Um, where, by um, Laurie Schultz is our next question. Were two tiered healthcare to be implemented in Alberta? Would we have sufficient numbers of doctors, nurses, and medical health professionals? Um, well, inevitably, if the private sector were paying more, and it would have to pay more to attract people out of the public system, I suspect, if it, to do so at high volumes. I mean, at small volumes, you know, it won't impact especially on the the public system i think but if you were actually going to try and uh, have a large scale two-tier healthcare where you know maybe 50 percent of uh, surgeries were done uh, in private clinics that inevitably is going to require that they tempt that the private providers attract um staff out of the public system with more attractive uh, financial and non-financial employment packages. So it, it, it can't happen without an impact upon the, uh, the public system. And, and that's, you know, that's the way markets work. You know, we, we, we pay people more to attract them from one job away from one job into another. And that's completely legitimate. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. As I understand it, Australia has a fairly successful system of mixed public and private healthcare. What are your thoughts on that system? So it depends what you define as successful. Um, so uh, the it, it works, uh, but the that is undoubtedly true that the ability to afford insurance uh, to cover the top up fee that. Uh, very many doctors now charge um, means that people with less uh, financial resources have longer wait times for pretty much all surgeries and elective interventions. So um, it, it, it is pretty well financed. Financially, it's working very well, but it's also undoubtedly true that uh, the impact on equity has been what you would expect it to be. Uh, and that was a decision the government made knowing that they expected to have that effect, but they wanted to, to get more money in the entire budget, a healthcare system, uh, without it being done through taxes. Um, and so they, they did it essentially through private insurance. And, and the people at the 
real end of the uh, lower end of the income distribution are the ones that can't afford the insurance and therefore uh, incur um, wait time penalties rather than having to pay financial penalties to access care. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Would you comment on quality and cost of healthcare with virtual services such as Babylon and such platforms? So I, I think this is very, very early. Um, uh, I don't, you know, the costs such as I've seen them do not appear to be um, exorbitant in terms of the direct cost to, to the consumer. So the direct consumer cost is not large. We don't know a lot of things. I know with Babylon there was there was great concern um, initially when it was launched in the UK about the, the quality of the diagnoses that were being given. Uh, it was uh, reported to be both over and under diagnosing uh, in, in ways that clinicians thought was important and on occasions even potentially dangerous. Um, where it is now in terms of the quality of its care, uh, I haven't seen uh, strong evaluations. The other thing we don't know uh, and, uh, is what it does to demand for healthcare uh, in the public system. So there was some evaluation, an early evaluation in the UK that showed that it was actually very well suited for the young and the otherwise healthy. They got rapid um, uh, response uh, and a little bit of their utilization of the health system increased, but not a massive issue. Um, as the technology becomes more widespread, it will be important to see whether the appropriateness of use of the public health system uh, is about the same as you get through conventional face-to-face -face primary care uh, doctor uh, referrals. Uh, more efficient or more appropriate or less appropriate and how that 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 appropriateness drives into the efficiency of the health system uh, these are really new technologies and yes the use of them has been expedited by covid pandemic so we need to make sure that we get the data so that we can understand uh the full impact uh on on on, on the the quality and the cost of care uh and i think you know it, it potentially very exciting technologies potentially could be great value but as with any other health technology we shouldn't take that on faith we should collect the data uh, and, and check what works with these things and what doesn't work and, and improve them but uh, you know I, I think it would all have been for many of us uh, navigating healthcare in times of COVID would have been uh, much more troubling without the ability to deliver virtual care. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Certain surgical training programs in Canada have cut positions by 40% since graduates are not getting jobs. We need the surgeons but have no capacity to use them in our system, especially in orthopedics. Your yes. Comments? This is really, really important. So, and, and there's lots of issues in here. Okay. First of all, are we appropriately allocating our resources, our health system budgets, to where they will do the most benefit. I mean, um, you know, uh, complete transparency. My first department, my first academic research job was in an orthopedic surgery department. So, so I have an affection 
uh, and an appreciation of uh, genuinely how life-changing uh, a successful uh, hip replacement uh, and, and similar interventions can be. I'm a big fan of the value of orthopedic surgery. Um, so um, there's a question about, you know, we, if we're spending 20 billion or whatever a year, are we spending the right proportion of that on things like orthopedic surgery and, and other things versus, you know, uh, alternative uses uh, of the resources? Are we spending the right amount? If we are, yeah, if we actually think actually on balance we're spending the right amount, then the question is, why are we training more surgeons for orthopedic surgery than there is funded demand for that service? You know, the, 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 cut, the, the cut in the training places is the right response if we, are, if we believe the funding volume for orthopedic surgery is at the right level. Now, I tend to think that when you look at the orthopedic surgery wait lists, we're probably not at the right level. And, and we probably don't want to be cutting services. But but that, those are the questions. It's sort of a two two questions we have to have an answer to before we can give an answer to the overall question. It, it, I, I hope that was a helpful response. Could you um, bring your camera down a bit? Your camera yeah. keeps <laughs> moving up. <laughs> I don't know. What, normally this is fine. I, I can only apologize. This is a strange day for my, uh, my camera. It's decided yeah. to go rogue. Yeah, it's got a life on its own today. Um, our next question comes from Beth Mundell. If Alberta were to fund private surgeries, then due to the lack of economy of scale, doesn't this model actually reduce access to surgery by reducing funding to public surgery? And then a comment with economy of scale thus serving more people. So if the budget if the total budget for surgery is kept the same and we buy more uh, surgeries from the private sector and the cost per surgery is higher from the private sector than in the public sector due to economies of scale, then the total number of surgeries that can be funded from a specific budget will reduce. So the question is whether we want to increase the budget so that we actually get more surgeries done or, um, or, or we accept that we're going to do fewer surgeries because we want a mixture of public or private. Uh, but, you know, that, so it depends on the assumptions we make about the budget and the assumptions we make about the price at which the private sector can provide the surgeries compared to the public sector. Okay, our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Do you believe there is a deeper intention by the UCP government picking a fight with Alberta's doctors and nurses, i.e. slowly forcing more privatization? I don't, to be honest. Uh, I think it was very telling that the, the motion from their conference was essentially rejected by the government. Okay, so that whilst there is, I'm sure in their party, given that that motion was passed, there's a great interest in the uh, idea of a private healthcare system for Alberta. Um, given that the government said, no, we, that's, a, that's against what we stood for election on, that's, you know, we're not doing that. 
that provided with me uh, with, with my interpretation was that was that they're not, um, uh, you know, sort of hell bent on trying to drive privatization of healthcare in Alberta. I think um, they are interested in whether uh, some private involvement can drive efficiencies. So there's a there's an idea in um, in economics called contestability, um, where the ability, the existence of an entity that could compete with you makes you look at how to be more efficient so that they don't get tempted to come into your market and compete with you. So the, the, the possibility of competition is almost as effective at driving efficiency as competition itself. And I, I suspect that there's a, a certain amount of that thinking going on. And, and we do pay a lot of money for healthcare. You know, it's it, in these times, a government that didn't look at the healthcare budget, I think would be legitimately criticized for, for not really uh, being taking their job seriously. Uh, and, and, you know, the a lot of healthcare costs is kind of really difficult to change because it's not cash it's long-term commitments like hospital buildings and all of that capital and maintenance and everything the money we pay to doctors literally it's cash it's cash that goes from the government to the doctors so in in terms of a space where you could make savings that were real savings that could be uh, allocated to other uses or to stop increases in taxes the the, the cash budget for doctors is an obvious one. And so I, I understand why they went to look at it and tried to push very hard. Um, we all have experiences in our life where maybe the way we do it is not the way we do it with hindsight. Um, our next question comes from Carol Camille. Can you share any of your direction slash findings from the COVID working group you are on? Well, they're all in the public domain. Our report is is, is published at the, on the Royal Society of Canada uh, website. Uh, it, we, we said that there's a few things. First of all, we said that um, we didn't weather COVID very well uh, because of the way we've structured our society. When we have so many people uh, are on insecure income and in insecure employment, we may ask them to stay at home when they're sick, but if staying at home means that they starve or they can't pay their rent, well, I wouldn't stay at home either. So, you know, we need to take a long, hard look at the way we've structured our society for economic reasons and ask whether those actually uh, have a long-term cost that only gets realized in times of pandemic because times of pandemic are our future this is the fourth infectious disease outbreak this century we have been playing russian roulette and the previous three times we were lucky in the characteristics of the virus that it didn't take off and become a pandemic we will have more you know we've been having them basically every five years we should expect another one and each time is a gamble as to whether it's highly infectious, highly fatal. You know, we, we, we've had the highly infectious, not fatal. We've had the very fatal, not highly infectious. This time we got the worryingly fatal and highly infectious. So we've been playing Russian roulette, but this time the bill came due on the way we have set up our society and how it isn't fit for 
purpose in a la- in a time where infectious diseases are a major social threat. So I'd say that was the, the top line. Uh, we also said it would be important to take this opportunity where we have, uh, you know, for a long time we've avoided big decisions because the governments have argued, well, that's just too big a problem to solve. Well, we put the global economy on pause for six months. So the argument that some decisions are too big to make is no longer valid. It's not credible. So the big threats to our future, uh, the environment being an obvious one, the, the, the shift to a digital economy, major threat to our economic future, the way we choose to invest to build back should be to pursue the future economy, not try and protect the historical legacy economy. Uh, and, and there were a few others, but I'd say those were those are the two headlines that I'd share. Okay. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Per Mr. Zeliotis' case, that public waiting list breached this right to life and security, are you aware of any cases where private or two-tier health was breached with right to life and security of patients? I, I'm not aware of a legal case, um, but I, I would say that um, if you look south of the border uh, and you look at their life expectancy, which is driven by um, third world levels of life expectancy and infant mortality in those segments of society that can't afford access to high quality health care, can't afford the health insurance. He, he, there's no one to take a court case, uh, but but it, it is undoubtedly strong empirical evidence that um, very lightly re- regulated competitive markets uh, impact on a life expectancy uh, of, of the populations. Our next question comes from Carol. Uh, is it fair to say the UK system of public health care is in trouble? Are there any learnings from the Canadian Alberta system? So, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, I'm a big fan of the principles of the NHS. I think it's it's kind of like democracy. It's the worst way of doing things except every other one we've ever tried. Um, If what you are interested is equality of access to healthcare for the whole of your population. That said, I think over the last 30 years, what we can observe in the UK is that there is a minimum level of funding required for that to be sustained. And it's somewhere around 9% of GDP. Whenever the funding has dropped below that level in the UK, the quality of the care and the universality of prompt enough access has collapsed. And, and that's where we, what we're seeing now. The last decade has seen massive reductions in the funding of the NHS, whilst the need uh, driven by you know needs of the population have not, uh, have not reduced nor plateaued, they've increased because you know good healthcare keeps people alive for longer and so they develop more healthcare needs. That's a success. People being alive, but in need of healthcare to keep them in a good quality of life, that is success uh, to the NHS. But if you suddenly slash funding, then you you suddenly have people with real needs who are not receiving them. So I think it's not the principle that is is in trouble. It's 
the understanding of the level of funding required to operationalize that principle uh, in the UK. Uh, and I would say, uh, no, I don't think uh, I would point to Alberta as a model that the UK from, can learn from, if I'm honest. I love Alberta and many, many things about us. Uh, but I, I think uh, there are other health systems that probably have more to teach the UK uh, than the Albertan one. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. About every five years, there's a major change in medical treatment that seems to start in the private areas. Example, Dr. Gimbel in Calgary changed the rest of the world for cataract surgery. What's your comment on that? So a really interesting question. Do these, do these revolutions start in the private sector or do they spin off the private sector, the public sector into the private sector. So, and, and it is not just a healthcare question, it's actually innovation more broadly. And there are some economists who, who are specialists in, in studying where innovation comes from. Uh, and actually the evidence is overwhelming that the public sector is critical to innovation. Uh, the private sector is incredibly good at taking the innovative knowledge and spread and scale and commoditization of it. And we need that function. So, so I am a, a huge believer that it's not an either or, it's both. The sustained, secure funding environments that public healthcare systems give doctors in which they can explore things, no, and, and, and it's kind of okay to fail and not just doctors, all clinical care staff and researchers, where, where the system is big enough that it can accept and it can absorb, uh, try and fail. Whereas in the private sector, you try and fail, you fail and you can take the company with you. But once you've got to a certain level of knowledge and understanding, the private sector, when it, the risk of it failing is low enough, the private sector is then absolutely fantastic. Uh, Fast, uh, uh, getting that rapidly into a commodity that can be sold widely, can be distributed widely. So I don't see them as as, as things in tension and in competition with them I, with each other. I see them as both essential components of an innovative society. Um, our next question comes from Bev Mundell. Should long-term care be standardised federally? as the private care facilities have failed our seniors? I think this is, I think all of us would say that um, the performance of the care sector, the long-term care sector in this pandemic is, is, is our biggest shame. And it's not just Canada, I think it's across the Western world. Um, and to what extent that is, because a lot of them were private, I'm, I'm not sure. I would go, I would, I would modify it. I think it's because they were private and too lightly regulated. You know, um, Keynes said the market is a, uh, a great servant, but a poor master. And we had to be willing to regulate uh, for standards of resourcing and of care that 
uh, imposed costs. Uh, and, and we, as a society, we voted for politicians who said we're light touch, we're anti-regulation, we don't like red tape. So we as a society, over a long time, voted to cut red tape and such like, assuming it would be somebody else's red tape that was low value. Of course, in our own space, we know what all these regulations are for and why they're valuable. So I, I, I don't think, you know, this is not a chance to kick the private sector. It's a chance to recognize that when we use the private sector to deliver things, we have to regulate very clearly and accept that that will impose costs on them. Uh, and, and so understanding when to use the private sector and when actually some uh, social not-for-profit provision or direct public provision is the better, you know, that's, that's the lesson I think we need to take from this. And I think there was some fantastic work done again by Colleen Flood, another report out of the Royal Society's Task Force on COVID, where they really got into this. And I, I think it, it's well worth a read. Uh, and I don't think um, I want to reach for, I don't think we as a society should should see it as a, a chance to kick the private sector, maybe to kick ourselves for being naive about what happens if we just go for unregulated free markets to provide socially important goods and services. Okay, our last question uh, by Laurie Schultz. I understand Alberta has for a some time had privatized healthcare. Do other provinces have the same ratio? And does Alberta need a higher ratio of privatized healthcare? Um, I don't know what the ratio is in all the provinces. So, uh, uh, sorry, I can't answer that question. And um, I, I think, I don't, I wouldn't say it needs it. It depends what we're trying to achieve with our healthcare system and our healthcare funding. Um, that, you know, if, if we are clear about what we want from our healthcare expenditure, then we can make reasonably informed decisions about which components are best provided publicly and which components are best provided privately. What we need to be honest about is the trade-offs. That there's there's not this. Um, there's not a, a, a way to move from private to more public that doesn't have implications for people who would like and have the financial wherewithal to to, uh, to purchase care privately. We'll see more of them going south of the border. Um, nor is there a, a, a no cost to go from public to more private. People who can't afford the private will likely face longer waiting times with the health implications. There is no perfect choice. There is no win-win solution here. Uh, we just need to be honest about the choices we're making as a society uh, and, and go with the mix of public and private that expresses our choices, our values, and, and, and be honest about that. Okay, that was all our questions. We've got lots of thank yous from Laurie Schultz. Thank you for an objective and comprehensive discussion on healthcare this morning. Maria Fitzpatrick, thank you, Dr. McCabe, for an informative and nonpartisan presentation. Ian Hurdle, many thanks. Beth Mundell, thank you so much. And it goes on. Um, before, and thank you from SACPA on behalf of SACPA. We very much appreciate your, your uh, talk today. And before we end up the live stream, do you have a take home message for our viewers? 
Um, I think the take-home message is appreciate what we've got. There is an awful lot about healthcare in Alberta and in Canada that is a complete privilege. It could be better. It should be better. But don't don't lose perspective. The imperfections, every system has imperfections. So do appreciate what we've got, but still look for ways we can make it better. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. We look forward to next week where we have uh, the Lethbridge Police Chief, uh, Shaheem Desiree, um, talking on policing in challenging times. So we hope that you'll join us next week. And um, I'll end the live stream now. Thank you very much, everybody.